Hello, homemakers, and welcome to episode four of the Art of Home podcast summer reading series. I'm your host, Allison Weeks. I'm a wife, a mom to four grown kids, grandmother to one baby boy due to arrive this fall, and I have been practicing the art of home for 30 years. Welcome back to our regular listeners, and thank you for faithfully tuning in each week. If you're new here, welcome. I am so glad that you found us. We are in the middle of our summer reading series. We're working our way through the 1882 classic, Homemaking, by the Reverend J.R. Miller. So far, we have read um, chapters on wedded life, the husband's part, the wife's part, the parent's part, and the children's part. This week, we will be looking at brothers and sisters and the home life. That is chapter six and seven of the book. These are quite long, so you may have to split up your listening time this week. In chapter six, Miller covers the duties of brothers to their sisters and sisters to their brothers, as well as the duties of brothers to brothers and sisters to sisters. There is some wonderful teaching in this chapter for siblings of all ages. I think you might find this particularly useful for training older children and teenagers, but there is a little warning that I need to give you in case sensitive ears are listening in. Miller begins this chapter with a few examples of sibling relationships marked by love and devotion, and one of these is the tragic story of Charles and Mary Lamb. This brief account of the lambs includes some disturbing details, so you might want to keep that in mind. In chapter 7, Miller discusses what he calls the home life. That is, the daily goings-on in the home and how the family is to navigate through the twists and turns of daily life. He covers in depth the importance of loving and thoughtful conversation, and he gives some very practical suggestions. He discusses the importance of evenings spent together at home, the influence of media brought into the home, and he encourages us to embrace wholesome and joyful amusements together. Miller ends this chapter reflecting on how a family can navigate the inevitable waters of grief and sorrow without losing their joy and their hope. As always, I remind you to listen with grace to these words penned over 140 years ago. Some of the language might be unfamiliar, and some of the meanings of the words may have changed since this was written. His instruction is always biblically sound, but he does not mince words. Therefore, don't be surprised if something pricks your spirit a little bit. Consider his words prayerfully before you react. This was part of the reason why I decided to write a companion study of reflection questions to go along with this summer reading series. Every Friday, I send out reflection questions for the chapters that are covered in that week's episode. You can get your copy of the questions by clicking the link in the notes or go to theartofhomepodcast.com slash summer. Also, I do put links to the previous chapter questions in each Friday email. So if you're just now signing up, you will have access to the past week's questions via your Friday emails. Eventually, I am going to put the whole study in the book on our website for download, but For right now, (laughs) the only way to get the questions is by being on our mailing list. Okay, we have a lot of reading to do today, so let's get started on J.R. Miller's Homemaking, Chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 6, Brothers and Sisters One warm spring day, a gentleman tore down an outbuilding that had stood for thirty years. 
when all the rubbish had been cleared away, the spot looked very bare, like a bit of arid desert in the midst of the rich garden that surrounded it. But soon rain fell, and then the sun poured down its beams, and in a few days there sprang up countless lovely little flowers, where for thirty years there had been neither life nor beauty, covering the unsightly place and making it one of the fairest spots in all the garden. The seeds must have been lying there in the soil all those years, but having neither light, moisture, nor warmth, they had never grown. Many a roof covers a home life that is bare of beauty and joy. Yet all the elements are there that are needed to make it a true image of heaven in its blessedness and peace. In the children growing up together, there are the possibilities of a very rich life with deep joys, fond ties, and mutual inspirations. There is wanting only the mighty transforming power of affection to bring out all these possibilities. Surely it is not right that so much blessing should be lost. There is not so much happiness in the world that we can afford to leave our homes desert spots when they might be blossoming gardens. Certainly it is worthwhile to think of the matter, for each of us honestly to inquire whether in our home there are not seeds of beautiful things that are yielding no beauty whether there are not treasures hidden in our family life which we have never yet discovered, whether we are not blindly passing by heaven's richest gifts to us of friendship and tender affection lying within our own doors while we pass our quest into other fields and vainly seek for satisfaction. In every home where there are brothers and sisters, there is a field which needs only wise, patient culture to yield life's richest and loveliest things. Are we cultivating this field? Or is it lying neglected, covered, perhaps with weeds and thorns, while we are spending all our strength in trying to make harvest grow on some bare rocky hillside? A complete family is one in which there are not only both parents and children, but also both brothers and sisters. A family with boys alone or with girls alone is incomplete. Its life is not full. In either case, however happy the home may be, there is something wanting. If there are boys only, the coarser, ruder elements are likely to prevail without the softening, refining influence which comes from girl life in the family. An English writer says, Families that are composed only of boys grow up rude and selfish, very hard, brusque, and unfeeling. The process of education, which begins as soon as a child is born, loses all its tenderness, all its sweetness, when girls are wanting. Then, if there are girls only, they, on the other hand, miss the strengthening inspiration, which comes from association and companionship with brothers. Though this statement is too absolute in its terms, yet it is true of many cases, and certainly expresses a tendency in all. A full and complete family is one in which there are both brothers and sisters, and where all dwell together in tender love. We all know such homes where the family life is full and the family intercourse close, familiar and happy, 
where parents and children and brothers and sisters live together in sweet accord and where the music of the daily life is like an unbroken song of holy peace. Wherever there is such a home, its blessedness is almost heavenly. But it is not thus in every household. There are families which are complete so far as numbers go, with both brothers and sisters in the circle, but whose home life fails to realize the peace and love which I have described. Something is wanting. There may be bitterness and strife, or there may be only the absence of all tenderness and of all true and holy fellowship. In either case, the story is very sad. A great possible happiness is missed. A great and solemn duty of happiness is neglected and despised. Such a home ought always to be not merely happy, but happy in the deepest, richest, fullest sense. If it fail to be so, great must be the guilt of those who are responsible for the failure. Brothers and sisters have an important duty in the making of the home life. What is their part? Here is a household in which there are two or three sisters, and as many brothers, growing up together. What does each owe to this home? What do they owe to one another? How should they live together? What should sisters do for brothers and brothers for sisters? How should sisters help their sisters and brothers help their brothers? These are a few of the questions which I would like to start in the minds of young people who are living together in the home of their parents. It is not so much matter whether I answer the questions myself or not. If I can merely start them in the minds of those whom they concern so that they shall go on thinking about them and trying to answer them practically in their lives. This will be far better than the fullest, completest, and wisest answers on the pages of this or any book. I shall be quite content, therefore, if I can merely set up a few emphatic interrogation points in this chapter. What should be the home intercourse of brothers and sisters? What should they do toward the home life? How should they live together? These questions may be answered in general by saying that a close and tender friendship should exist between them. This sounds like a very commonplace remark. Of course brothers and sisters should be friends and should live together in an intimate relationship as friends. No one denies it. But do we universally find this warm, living, and tender friendship where there are young people in a home? We often find strong ties and attachments, mutual affection and interest, and much that is very beautiful. But when we come closer and look for friendship in the true sense, it is wanting. The brothers and sisters may love one another very truly, but they seek their friends outside the home. They go outside for warm sympathy, for close intimacy, for confidential companionship. It is not hard to find reasons for this. Living always together and knowing one another from infancy members of the same family are apt to grow uninteresting to one another. The sameness of the society day after day takes away its freshness. The common life which they all lead under the same roof, with the same pursuits, the same topics for conversation, the same incidents and experiences, the same hopes and fears, the same joys and sorrows, the same books, the same social life— renders it difficult for the members of a household to impress one another in continual repetition and ever fresh kindle inspiration and emotion the one in the other, as friends from other homes can do. 
coming in only now and then. Then the fact that it is home and that the ties are natural and thought to be secure, that the members are sure of each other without making any effort to win confidence and regard. That love between them is a matter of course, as if by nature, without winning it or cherishing it or troubling themselves to keep it. This is another of the causes for the absence of real friendship among brothers and sisters. They imagine that family affection is a sort of instinct, not subject to the laws which control other affections, that it does not need to be sought or gain or won, as affection must be in others. By giving affection in return and by the countless little tendernesses and thoughtfulnesses which are shown to others whom they desire to win. They forget that the principle, he that hath friends must show himself friendly, applies in the family just as well as outside of it. They forget that friendship anywhere must be cherished or it will die. That indifference and coldness will cause it to wither as drought causes summer flowers to wither. They imagine, in a word, that the love of the family is so sure and strong that it needs no care, no pains, to keep it safe. So it is that in very many homes, brothers and sisters may come and go, day after day, and year after year, mingling in all the life of the household, but never really forming close friendships among themselves. Friendships in the family require care and culture, as do other friendships. We must win one another's love inside the home doors, just as we win the love of outside friends. We must prove ourselves worthy. We must show ourselves unselfish, self-forgetful, thoughtful, kind, tender, patient, helpful. Then, when we have won each other, we must keep the treasure of affection and confidence, just as we do in the case of friends not in the sacred circle of home. If we have a friend whom we respect and prize very highly, we all know at what pains we are to retain his friendship. We are not sure of it regardless of our treatment of him. We are most careful never to do anything to make us seem unworthy of the friendship. We try to prune from our own character anything that would displease our friend. We cultivate assiduously those qualities of heart and life which he admires. We watch for opportunities to do kindnesses and show favors to him. We guard against whatever would wound him or cause him pain. We give him our confidence. We trust him and prove our affection for him in countless ways. Let no one suppose that home friendships can be won and kept in any other way. We cannot depend on nature or instinct to do this for us. We must live for each other. We must gain each other's heart by giving just what we expect to receive. We must cherish the friendship that we have won. Unless we do, it will not grow. We must watch our words and our conduct. We must seek to please and take pains never to wound or grieve. We must deny self and live for one another. We must confide in one another. We must cultivate in our own hearts and lives whatever is beautiful, whatever is tender, whatever is holy, whatever is true. Friendships in our own home, to be deep and true and heart-satisfying, must be formed by the patient knitting of soul to soul and the growing of life into life, just as in other friendships. 
Is it thus in most of our homes? There are distinguished exceptions. There are homes which shine like bits of heaven dropped down upon this sin-cursed earth. In these, natural affection has grown into a holy web of real and sacred friendship, binding brothers and sisters in closest bonds. There are brothers who have no friends so close as their own sisters. There are sisters who confide and trust in their own brothers as in no other friends. One of the tenderest as well as saddest stories of all literature is that of Charles and Mary Lamb. In a fit of insanity, the sister had taken the life of her own mother. All her life after this, she was subject to periods of frenzy, when it was necessary for her to be confined in an asylum. Then it was that her brother's affection showed itself. He lived for his sister in unselfish devotion. When she was in her right mind, she lived with him, and he watched over her with a care that was most touching. When the fit of insanity was coming on, there were premonitory symptoms. They would then start off together for the asylum, where for a time she must be confined. One of their friends relates how on one occasion he met the brother and sister weeping bitterly as hand in hand they slowly paced together a little footpath across the fields, and joining them he found that they were taking their solemn way to the accustomed asylum. This was not something that occurred once or twice only, but frequently, and was liable to occur at any time. It was not for a year or two only, but for thirty-five years until death separated them. He did not nerve himself to bear his awful charge for a month or for a year. He endured his cross through life, conscious that there was no escape from this burden and from its pains. The indescribable pathos of this story is equaled only by the matchless devotion and constancy of the brother to his sister in all her sad and terrible lot and by her tender, all-absorbing affection for him. Wordsworth has written of this devoted affection. Her love was as the love of mothers, and when years, lifting the boy to man's estate, had called the long-protected to assume the part of a protector, the first filial tie was undissolved. And in or out of sight remained imperishably interwoven with life itself. Through all visitations and all trials, still they were faithful. Like two vessels launched from the same beach, one ocean to explore with mutual help and sailing to their league, true as inexorable winds or bars, floating or fixed of polar ice allow. No doubt there are many such deep and real friendships between brothers and sisters. Between Wordsworth himself, just quoted, and his sister, there was an attachment which grew with the years and was full of devotion. In the closing lines of his poem, On Tintern Abbey, he pays this tribute to her love and her helpfulness. For thou art with me here upon the banks of this fair river, thou my dearest friend, my dear, dear friend, and in thy voice I catch the language of my former heart and read my former pleasures in the shooting lights of thy wild eyes. Oh, yet a little while may I behold in thee what I was once, my dear, dear friend. 
She lived in and for her brother, and his heart went out in great tenderness toward her. When we read his poems, we read the productions really of two souls in one, for she merged all her interests and gifts in his, contentedly effacing herself in order that he might become better and higher than he could otherwise have been, and able to render worthier service to the world. The self-sacrifice was complete, but it was crowned by a splendid result. There is another example of a devoted and romantic friendship between brother and sister in the Corners. The brother, Paul Theodore Corner, holds no mean place among German poets. He died at 22, falling in battle. His life was blessed by his sister's devotion, and her strong affection was nobly returned by him. They lived in mutual confidence. Their friendship was itself a rare and lovely idol of grace and beauty. His premature death killed her. She could not bear the shock nor live without him. She survived him only long enough to complete his portrait and to draw with the pencil of love a sketch of his last resting place. They sleep side by side, so that in death as in life they are not divided. Mrs. Hemmons has commemorated the story of their devotion in these lines. Thou hast a hero's tomb. A lovelier bed is hers, the gentle girl beside thee lying. The gentle girl that bowed her fair young head when thou wert gone, in silence, sorrow dying. Brother, true friend, the tender and the brave, she pined to share thy grave. Fame was thy gift from others, but for her, to whom the wide world held that only spot, she loved thee. Lovely in your lives ye were, and in your early deaths divided not. Thou hast thine oaks, thy trophy. What has she? Her own best place by thee. The history of life is not all written. Here and there in many a quiet home, there is a friendship between brother and sister, on which God's angels look with admiring love, which realizes all that is tender and beautiful in human attachment and affection. Yet I do not think I write a rash word when I say that such friendships are rare. Oftentimes, the intercourse of brothers and sisters in the home lacks even the graces of ordinary civility. As soon as the door shuts them within, restraint is thrown off, selfishness comes to the surface, courtesy is laid aside. There is no pleasant conversation. Neither lives for or tries to please the other. The speech is rude or careless, and the whole bearing cold or indifferent. The better nature is hidden, and the worse comes to the surface. Instead of a tender ideal of grace and beauty, the intercourse of brother and sister is a harsh and painful discord. It should not be so. Brothers and sisters should live together as intimate friends, should carefully win and sedulously keep each other's love, dwelling together in unity and tender affection. There is no friendship in the world so pure, so rich and helpful as that of the family, if only it be watched and tended as it should be. Why should not a brother make a confidant of his own sister rather than of any other? Why should not a sister look to her own brother for counsel, for protection, for advice, for intimacy, rather than to any other? 
Why should not brothers be proud to have their own sisters lean upon their arms? And why should not sisters be proud to look up into the faces of their brothers and feel secure in the shelter of their manly love? But instead of this, what do we often see? The brothers turn away from their own homes to find their companionships and friendships in other circles. As if their own sisters were not worthy of them, or it were a shame for a young man to devote himself in any measure to his sisters. As soon as they are old enough to be their companions, they begin to seek other friendships. The sisters are then left to go unprotected, or to accept that courtesy and shelter from others which their own brothers have failed to give. That is the picture, as too often it is. What it ought to be, however, is different. A young man should be more polite to his own sister than to any other young woman under heaven. And a young woman should ever turn to her brother as the one nearest in all this world to her until a husband stands by her side. Brothers and sisters are each other's natural keepers. If they fulfill their duties in this regard, the one to the other, life would show fewer wrecks. They should shield each other. They should be an inspiration to each other in the direction of all noble thought and better life. They should be each other's guardian angels in this world of danger and of false and fatal paths. Sisters may be their brother's angels. There is a picture of a child walking on a path that is covered with flowers. Along the edge of the narrow way is shrubbery, which hides from the child's sight a deep precipice. The child is unconscious of danger charmed by the flowers, and not seeing how one misstep would hurl it to death. Over the little pilgrim's head hovers a shadowy angel form, scarcely visible, but with eager, loving interest in his eye, while his hand gently touches the child's shoulder. His mission is to guide the child's steps, to shield it from danger, and to keep it from falling. The picture represents a truth in the loving providence of God. There are angels who guard, guide, shelter, and keep God's children. They are ministering spirits. They keep us in all our ways. Over each one of us, a guardian angel hovers unseen evermore. But there is also a most blessed angel ministry of sisters in behalf of their brothers. There is no need to paint here any picture of the perils to which young men are exposed in this world— It makes the heart bleed to see how many of the noblest of them are destroyed, dragged down to ruin, their fair lives blackened, their godlike manhood debauched. They go out of the home pure, with lofty aspirations, with high hopes, with brilliant promises, challenging the admiration of all who know them. They come back how often stained, degraded, hopes wrecked, promises unfulfilled. Every young man who enters life enters a fierce battle in which no truce will come till he either lies down in final defeat or wins the last victory and enters into joy and rest. Life is hard. The young enter it without thought, without anxiety, without serious or solemn sense of danger, because they are not conscious of its true meaning. But it is one prolonged struggle with enemies and with perils. What is life, father? A battle, my child, where the strongest lance may fail, where the wariest eyes may be beguiled, and the stoutest heart may quail, 
where the foes are gathered on every hand, and rest not day or night, and the feeble little ones must stand in the thickest of the fight. To every young man, life is specially hard. As he goes into it, he needs the sympathy of all who love him. He needs the prayers and the help of all his friends. For want of the strong support of love, many a young man goes down in the battle, and many who come through victorious owe their victories to the holy affection of truly loyal hearts that inspired them with hope and courage in all their hours of struggle. The value of strong friendships never can be known in this world. Next to mother and father, there is no one who can do so much to help a young man to live nobly as his own sister. She cannot always go with him. Her weak arm could not always shield him if she were beside him, but there is a help which she can give him that will prove mightier than her presence. It is not the help of good advice and earnest words. These should have power too, but the help rather of silent and holy influence gained in the home by a life of unselfishness and beauty, and then held as a potent charm outside and beyond the home walls. There is a power over her brother possible to every true sister, which would be like the very hand of God to guide him and restrain him in all the paths of life. All sisters, however, do not have this power over their brothers, and alas, sometimes the power is for evil rather than for good. May I try to tell you, dear girls, how you can indeed be your brother's guardian angels? Show them in your own lives at home the perfect grace and beauty of a true, noble, and lofty womanhood. Strive after all that is delicate, all that is pure, all that is tender, all that is holy and sacred in the divine ideal of woman. Show them in yourselves such perfect loveliness that they will turn away ever after from everything that is unlovely. Make virtue so attractive to them as they see it embodied in you that they will always be repelled by vice. Let them see in you such purity of soul, such sweetness of spirit, such divine sanctity that wherever they go, your influence will hang about them like an armor of defense or like an angel hover above their heads in perpetual benediction. Be as nearly a perfect woman, each one of you, through Christ's help, as it is possible for you to be. Then, when temptations come to your brother, there will rise up before his eyes such visions of purity and love that he will turn away with loathing from the tempter. But, oh, if you are not such angels of true womanhood to your brothers, if you do not fill their souls with visions of purity and sweetness, what help do you hope to be to them when they stand in the face of sore temptations? If you are deceitful, if you are selfish, if you are false, if you violate the holy properties of modesty and true refinement, if you are frivolous and trifling, if you follow pleasure, turning away from everything serious, if you are careless or heartless, do not deceive yourselves with the vain hope that you can be in any high sense your brother's guardians in the day of danger. You may advise, you may persuade, you may implore with tears and every token of tender love when they begin to yield, but your entreaties will avail nothing because your own life has failed to stand the test and to exhibit before them a lofty ideal of womanhood.
But if you will only be true, noble, unselfish, gentle, womanly, in the highest, purest sense, if you only are thoughtful and considerate and live for a purpose, making your character decided and strong, you will throw over your brothers a silent, imperceptible yet mighty influence, which will be a shield to them in danger, a panoply in temptation, and which will fill their hearts with the purest, loftiest aspirations and aims. A writer has truthfully said, in speaking of a sister's influence upon her brother, Woman is to him an object of respect or contempt, according to what he sees of his sister's mind and heart. She cannot, therefore, be too careful in teaching him to respect as well as love her. She cannot confer on him a greater kindness than by giving him an exalted idea of womanhood. She cannot inflict a greater injury than by leading him to think that all women are trifling and heartless, indolent except in the pursuit of pleasure, and greedy of admiration. We know not half the power for good or ill our daily lives possess or one another. A careless word may help a soul to kill, or by one look we may redeem our brother. Tis not the great things that we do or say, but idle words forgot as soon as spoken, and little thoughtless deeds of every day are stumbling blocks on which the weak are broken. Brothers should also be their sister's guardians. Every young man knows what true gallantry is and what it requires of him. He is to honor every lady, whether rich or poor, whether of higher or lower station, and show her every respect. He is to be to every woman a true knight, ready to defend her from danger, to shield her from every insult, to risk his own life in her behalf. There is no better test of a gentleman than his treatment of women. Now, to whom ought every young man to show the highest, truest gallantry? To whom ought he first of all to be a most true and loyal knight? To whom, if not to his own sisters? Do not they come first in the circle of those to whom he owes honor? Have they not the first claim on his affection? If he is not a true gentleman to his own sisters, can he be at heart a true gentleman to any other woman? Can a young man be manly and treat his own sisters with less respect and honor than he treats other young ladies? Hence, a still higher test of a gentleman is his treatment of his own sisters. His chivalry must show itself first toward those who are closest to him in natural ties. He must show them the truest deference. He must treat them with that delicate regard, that gentle affectionate respect that tells of the loftiest gallantry. He must consider himself their true knight, whose office it is to throw about them every needed shelter, to serve them, and to promote their highest good in every way. Of course, There is no young man with one spark of the honor of true manliness in his breast who will not instinctively defend his sister if she is insulted in the street. He will put himself instantly between her and the danger. Neither is there any brother worthy of the name who will not defend the honor of his sister if vile tongues asperse it. But more than this is required of a loyal brother. He should make himself a wall about his sister to shield her from every evil and unholy influence. 
every young man knows other young men. He knows their character, their habits, their good and evil qualities. He knows the young men whose lives are impure, who are licentious, who consort with harlots. He knows those who indulge in strong drink, those who are godless and profane, those whose lives are stained with the filth of debauchery. Can he be a true brother and permit such a young man to be the companion of his pure and gentle sister? Can he allow her in the innocence of her heart to accept the attentions of such a young man, to lean upon his arm, to look up into his face with trust? Can he allow her to give her soul's confidences to him? Can he see a friendship forming, strengthening, between his sister and such a young man and remain silent, uttering in her ear no voice of warning or protest, and yet be a loyal and faithful brother to her? This is a place for plain, strong, and earnest words. Surely, young men do not think of this matter seriously, or they would require no argument to convince them of their duty. Put the case in the strongest possible form and bring it close to home. You have a sister pure as a lily. She has grown up beside you in the shelter of the home. Her eyes have never looked upon anything vile. Her ears have never heard an impure word. Her soul is white as the snowflakes that fall from the clouds. You love her as you love your own life. You honor her as if she were a queen. A young man seeks to win her regard and confidence. He stands well in society, has good manners, is attractive, intelligent. But you know that he frequents resorts of evil, that his secret life is unchaste, that his soul is stained with low and vile sins that he is the victim of habits which will bring ruin and dishonor in the end. Your sister knows nothing of his true character. Can you permit him to become her companion? Are you not bound to tell her that he is not worthy of her? Can you do otherwise and be a faithful brother? Besides this standing between his sister and danger, every brother should also show her in his own life the ideal of the truest, purest, most honorable manhood. If it be true that the best shield a sister can make for her brother is to show himself in herself the loftiest example of womanhood, it is true also that the truest defense a brother can make for his sister is a noble manhood in his own person. He must exhibit before her continually a character without spot or stain, with high aspirations, with generous sympathies, with pure, true, unselfish, Christ-like spirit and disposition. If he is going to shield his sister from the impure, he must not be impure himself. He must show her in himself such a high ideal of manhood that her soul shall unconsciously and instinctively shrink from everything that is vulgar, rude, or evil. There is no other defense so perfect. Let no brother think that he can be a shelter from evil to his sister if his own life be not unsullied and true. It must be said also that young ladies should accept and even seek the counsel of their brothers with regard to their companions. Let the brothers be true to their sisters, setting before them a lofty example. Let them be ready to shield them from danger and to be their wise, faithful counselors. Then let sisters look to their brothers for protection, and for advice, and be quick to heed the warnings they give and to shun the dangers they point out. Are young women always wise in this regard? 
Do they desire or receive the counsel of their brothers with regard to companions? Are they always careful enough, even when they know young men to be immoral? When a young woman falls into sin, the stain always stays upon her name. She can never rise again to her former place. She is excluded from society. She carries the burden of her tarnished name wherever she goes, and though more sinned against than sinning, though the victim of the basest betrayal, she stands thereafter outside the gates, friendless and neglected. Though she repent of her sin and creep to her Savior's feet and find forgiveness, though the wounded, stricken lamb be lain in the shepherd's bosom and borne back into his fold, though she be numbered among the children of the Father, yet society still has no forgiveness for her. Her own sister women have no mercy for her, no place for her by their side or in their circles. But what of her betrayer and destroyer? Is he also excluded from society? Is he shunned by the pure who look with so much scorn upon his victim? Is he not still allowed by many young ladies to hold his place, to be honored and welcomed, as if there were no stain upon his soul, no crime branding his brow? Are young women true to themselves when they receive to friendship and intimacy one who has proved himself so unworthy of confidence? Let them seek counsel from their own brothers as to the character and fitness of other young men before they receive them to companionship, and accept as friends only such as are worthy of their regard and confidence. In like manner, every young man who has a true sister will do well to take counsel of her concerning other young ladies with whom he would form close friendship. She knows far more than he can possibly know of their real character and is competent to advise him. He will prove his wisdom by seeking her counsel, especially in forming intimate relationships, which may have so much to do with his whole future. Indeed, there is no phase of his life into which a young man will not be the better and his life the cleaner and richer for the influence and the help of his sister. Washington Irving wrote these pathetic words concerning the loss he had sustained in his life from having no sisters. Often I have lamented that Providence denied me the companionship of sisters. Often have I thought, had I been thus favored, I should have been a better man. There is many a man who would have been better if he had been blessed with sisters. Every brother who has a sister should cherish her and let his heart go out to her in loyal, manly love. He should prize her love for him as one of the sweetest flowers in earth's garden, one of the most sacred and precious things in life, and he should love her with an affection deep, tender, and strong. For see, now only see, there's no alloy of earth that creeps into the perfectest gold of other loves, no gratitude to claim. You never gave her life, not even the dross that keeps life, never tended her, instructed, enriched her. So your love can claim no right or hers, save pure love's claim. Since so much has been said in this chapter of the sister's influence and of the wondrous and subtle charm of her power over her brother, It ought also to be said that not every sister possesses this power. There are many who throw it away. No sister can keep it and be frivolous and trifling. 
no one can keep it and be a silly butterfly of fashion. To retain it, she must be a true, thoughtful, noble woman. She must have a character that shines like crystal in its purity, its sincerity, its simplicity. The power she has and retains must be the power of true womanliness, whose strength is gentleness and whose inspiration is purity of soul. There is no better place than this to say a few earnest words to young girls on the cultivation of their own hearts. Among all the elements of beauty in the character of a young woman, none is more essential than purity of mind and heart, and none gives such grace to the whole life and spirit. Here are a few sentences taken from a private letter. True refinement is not mere outside polish. It goes deeper and penetrates to the very foundation of character. It is purity, gentleness, and grace in the heart, which, like the perfume of flowers, breathe out and bathe all the life in sweetness. It is not mental culture. There is true refinement often where education has been limited where in the speech you may detect faults and errors. On the other hand, there is sometimes high intellectual furnishing without any true refinement. That which really refines is purity of mind and heart. These words are very true. It is not possible even to think of true womanhood without purity. It were as easy to think of a rose without beauty or of a lily without whiteness. Amid the wreck of this world wrought by sin, there are still some fragments of the beauty of Eden, and among these none is lovelier than the unsullied delicacy of a true woman's heart. It is possible, too, to preserve this holy purity even amid all this world's sin and foulness. I have seen a lily floating on the black waters of a bog. All about it lay stagnation and vileness, but in the midst of all this, the lily remained pure as the robes of an angel. It lay on the dark pond, rocked on the bosom of every ripple, yet never receiving a stain. It held up its unsullied face toward God's blue heaven and poured its fragrance all about it. So it is possible, even in this world of moral evil, for a young woman to grow up, keeping her soul unstained in the midst of it all, and ever breathing out the perfume of holy, unselfish love. On the window of her cell, an unhappy girl queen wrote with a diamond this prayer, Keep me pure, make others great. This is a fit prayer for every young girl. She should prize nothing in this world so highly as her purity of heart, of thought, of soul. She should be willing to lose anything else, pleasure, wealth, reward, rather than lose this richest jewel. She should guard her imagination, her heart, her affections, that no breath that would sully may ever blow over her life. There is need here for earnest warning. There are dangers to which every young girl is exposed. There are indications in society of the lowering of the tone of girlhood. There are things in some circles that are painful to every sensitive heart. There are papers and books offered everywhere, and read by too many, which leave a trail of stain on the fair flowers of maidenly refinement. When on a winter's morning you breathe upon the exquisite tracery of frostwork on a window pane, it melts down, and no human hand can ever restore it. 
still less it is possible to restore the charm and purity to the soul that has lost it. If a young girl would grow into the most spotless womanhood, radiant in every feature with the loveliness of Christ's own image, she must from her earliest youth, through all the experiences of her life, maintain unsullied purity of heart. So far, the duty only of brothers to sisters and sisters to brothers has been considered. It ought to make a young man's heart exult to have a beautiful and noble sister to lean upon his arm and look up to him for protection, for counsel, for strong, holy friendship. And a sister ought to be proud and happy to have a brother growing into manly strength, to stand by her side, to bear her upon his arm and to shelter her from life's storms. Between brother and sister, there should be a friendship deep, strong, close, confiding, and faithful. But the home presents opportunities also for friendships between brother and brother, and between sister and sister. Why should not the brothers of a family stand together? They have common ties, common joys and sorrows, common interests. The same mother gave them birth and taught their infant lips to lisp the words of prayer. The same father toiled and sacrificed for them. The same home roof shelters them. Why should they not be to each other the loyalest of friends? When one is in trouble, to whom should his instincts teach him first to turn if not to his own brother? Where should he think to find quicker sympathy and readier help than in his brother's heart and hand? Who should be so willing to give help as a brother? Yet, do we always find such friendship between brothers? Sometimes we do. There are families of brothers who do stand together in most loyal affection. They share each other's burdens. If one is in trouble, the others gather close about him with strong, sustaining sympathy, as when one branch of a tree is bruised, all the other branches give of their life to restore the one that is injured. The picture is very beautiful, and it is what should be seen in every home in which brothers dwell but too often it is not seen. Frequently they drift apart even while they stay under the home roof. Each builds up interests of his own. They seek different friends outside. Sometimes over a father's grave they quarrel about petty questions of property and unholy feuds build walls between hearts and lives that should have been bound together inseparably forever. With so much in common, with the most sacred ties to bind them together, and the most holy memories to sanctify their union, brothers should permit nothing ever to estrange them from each other. No selfish interest, no question of money or property, no bitterness or feud should ever come in to sever their hearts. Though continents divide them and seas roll between them, their love should remain faithful, strong, and true forever. In like manner, the sisters in a home should maintain their friendship for each other through all the changes and all the varied experiences of life. This they do more frequently than their brothers. There are many very beautiful sisterly attachments. Their life within the home holds them together more closely than brothers are held in their outside life. They have better opportunities for the cultivation of friendship among themselves in the many hours they sit together at their household work. Then the interests of their lives are less likely to separate them or start differences between them. Nothing is lovelier than the picture of sisters locked in each other's arms, their lives blending in holy love, the one helping the other, 
giving comfort in sorrow, strength in weakness, and help in trial. Are the brothers and sisters who read these pages realizing in their own lives the ideals which have here been even so imperfectly sketched? Are they living together in tender love in their own home? If they are, heaven's benediction will fall upon their hearts and lives like a baptism of holy peace. If they are not, where is the fault? What can be done to correct it? Too many blessed possibilities of joy, of love, and of helpfulness lie in these sacred relationships to be neglected or ruthlessly tossed into the dust. Life is too short to be spent in strife and discord anywhere, especially in the holy circle of the home. Strifes and alienations here are the seeds for the harvest of sorrow. Sad, sad will it be to stand by the coffin of a brother or a sister, and while we look at the cold, silent clay, remember that we were ever unkind to one who stood so near, that we ever failed in acts of love, or that we ever allowed anything to estrange us or make our intercourse cold and formal. Have you brothers or sisters living anywhere in this great world? Have you allowed the friendship to grow cold or the ties to be forgotten? Have you permitted all intercourse to be broken off? Lose not a day till you have done the first thing, taken the first step to gather up the shattered links and reunite them in a holy chain. If they are far away, write to them in words of love. If they are within reach, go to them in person. If you are still living side by side in the old home, and if your life together has not been close, intimate, confiding, and helpful, seek at once by all the wise arts of a loving heart to make it what it ought to be. Then, no matter how plain, simple, or old-fashioned your home may be, the sacred friendships beneath its roof will transfigure it all. Poverty is a light cross if there is love at home. Toil, hardships, care, sacrifice, and even sorrow lose their ruggedness, bleakness, and severity when tender affection twines over them, as cold, bare, rugged rocks are changed into beauty when the wild vines wreathe them all over with festoons of green and gentle smiling flowers grow from every crevice and fill every black nook and fissure. Dear moss, said the thatch on an old ruin, I am so worn, so patched, so ragged. Really, I am quite unsightly. I wish you would come and cheer me up a little. You will hide all my infirmities and defects, and through your loving sympathy, no finger of contempt or dislike will be pointed at me. I come, said the moss. And it crept up and around and in and out until every flaw was hidden and all was smooth and fair. Presently, the sun shone out, and the old thatch looked bright and fair, a picture of rare beauty in the golden rays. How beautiful the thatch looks, cried one who saw it. How beautiful the thatch looks, said another. Ah, said the old thatch. Rather let them say, how beautiful is the loving moss that spends itself in covering up all my faults, keeping the knowledge of them all to herself, and by her own grace, making my age and poverty wear the garb of youth and luxuriance. Is your home plain and bare? Must you meet hardships and endure toil? 
Have you cares and privations? Do you sigh for something finer, more beautiful, less hard? Call up love to wreathe itself over all your home life. Cultivate home friendships. Bind up the broken home ties. Plant the flowers of affection in every corner. Then, soon, all will be transfigured. You will forget care, hardships, and toil for they will all be hidden under lovely garments of affection. Your eye will see no more the homeliness, the hardness, the anxieties, the toils, but will be charmed with the luxuriance of love that shall cover every blemish. Chapter 7. The Home Life In a quiet nook among the hills where great forest trees interlock their branches and form a deep shade, a little stream takes its rise. It springs out from among the rocks and goes rippling over the stones, only a tiny thread of silver at first as it begins its way toward the great sea. Other streamlets join it as it flows, and it goes on gathering and increasing in volume until it becomes a river, bearing commerce on its bosom and emptying at last into the broad ocean. Its course is marked by great variety. For a time, it goes laughing and dancing over the stones like a child at play with merriment and glee. As it grows wider and deeper, it becomes soberer and graver, and its motion is slower, and when it is a river, its flow is calm and majestic. Sometimes its course lies in the sunshine, its waters sparkling like crystal in the bright rays. Sometimes it runs through meadows and fields, where sweet flowers bloom on its banks. Sometimes it plunges into deep, dark gorges between high rocks where no sunbeam ever falls and no flower ever blooms. Sometimes it breaks into a mad swirl or rushes away in a fierce torrent or leaps over a precipice in a foaming cataract. So it flows on, amid all this diversity of scene and experience, until it reaches the wide sea. Is not all this a picture of the life of every true home? It begins when two young lives meet and blend in one, and at the marriage altar with clasped hands vow to love and cherish each the other until death shall separate them. It starts amid flowers and pealing bells and sweet strains of music and congratulations of friends. In its earliest course, it is like the singing brook as it ripples away in its pebbly channel, without care or serious thought, merry and gladsome, bright and sparkling, but without great depth or meaning. In some sense, these are happy days, yet their happiness is superficial and does not take deep hold on life. A little later, and the current begins to deepen and widen. Other lives enter the stream of the home life as one by one the children come. After that, there may be less glee and merriment, just as the stream grows calmer and quieter with its increasing volume. There is more care. Anxieties creep into the life. Thoughtlessness gives way to seriousness as responsibilities are added. New burdens accumulate. Life takes on a deeper meaning. There is less of laughing light-heartedness, perhaps, but the joy is deeper and more real. 
As the years pass on, the experiences of the home life are diversified by many a change and vicissitude, by many an alternation of joy and sorrow. There are times of gladness and prosperity, as when the stream flows through quiet valleys and green slopes stretch away from its banks and sweet flowers kiss its silvery waters. Then there are times of sorrow, when the peaceful current is broken, when the stream plunges into the gloomy chasm. Every home has its experiences of trial, but through these it passes, emerging again and flowing on, calmer, deeper, more majestic, in richer, fuller life than before, until at last it enters the great sea of eternity. In the foregoing chapters, the part of each member of the family in the making of the home has been considered. The duties and responsibilities of the husband, of the wife, of the parents, of the children, of brothers and sisters have been touched upon. If all the different members of a family are faithful in their own places, doing their own part well, the home life will be a sweet song of holy peace. Whatever its experiences may be, it will always have its undertone of joy. In its darkest nights of trial, it will be brightened by the lamps of affection which no wintry blast can put out. Secluded from the world, sheltered by its own roof, containing in itself the sources of happiness, and not dependent upon the outside world for its gladness and joy, it matters little whether it be day or night, whether it be calm or stormy without. The true home has a peace that is not broken by earth's tempests. Its love is a fountain of blessing that does not waste in summer weather and is not frozen in coldest winter. The possibilities of happiness and blessing in household life are simply incalculable. All that is needed is that each member faithfully do his own part. It may be profitable at this point to touch upon a few of the particular phases and incidents of home life common to all households. There is nothing insignificant in the life that we live within our own doors. There is nothing that is without influence in the building up of character. On some old rocks, the geologist shows you the tracks of birds made ages and ages ago and the print of the leaf that fell or the dents made by the pattering raindrops. It was soft sand then, but it hardened afterward into rock, and these marks were preserved, imperishable records of the history of a day that shone uncounted centuries ago. Let no one think that the history of any day in the life of a home is recorded any less imperishably on the sensitive lives of the children. There is something infinitely more important than the mere performance of duties. There is an unconscious influence that hangs about every life like an atmosphere, which is more important than the words or acts of the life. There are many parents who fail in no duty, who are deeply anxious for their children and really strive to make their home what it should be, whose influence is not a benediction. When the results of life are all gathered up, it will probably be seen that the things in us which have made the deepest and most lasting impressions in our homes and upon our children have not been the things we did with purpose and intention— planning to produce a certain effect, but the things we did when we were not thinking of training or influencing or affecting any other life. A wise writer says, 
I look with wonder on that old time and ask myself how it is that most of the things I suppose my father and mother built on, especially to mold me to a right manhood, are forgotten and lost out of my life. But the things they hardly ever thought of. The shadow of blessing cast by the home, the tender, unspoken love, the sacrifices made and never thought of, it was so natural to make them, Ten thousand little things so simple as to attract no notice, and yet so sublime as I look back at them. They fill my heart still, and always with tenderness when I remember them and my eyes with tears. It is not so much strict fidelity in teaching and training that is powerful in our homes for holy impression as it is the home life itself. The former is like the skillful trimming and training of a vine. The latter is like the sunshine and the rain that fall upon the vine. The writer above quoted adds, It is said that a child, hearing once of heaven and that his father would be there, replied, Oh, then I didn't want to go. He did but express the instinct of a child to whom the father may be all that is good except just goodness, and be all that any child can want except what is indispensable, that gracious atmosphere of blessing in the healing shadow it casts, without which even heaven would come to be intolerable. It is necessary that the whole home life and home spirit should be in harmony with the teaching and training if these are to make holy impressions. Simple goodness is more important than the finest theories of home government most thoroughly and faithfully carried out. There is nothing in the daily routine of the family life that is unimportant. Indeed, it is oftentimes the things we think of as without influence that will be found to have made the deepest impression on the tender lives of the household. A distinguished Danish artist had chiseled in the city of Rome some of his rarest works in marble. When he had finished them, they were sent home. The workmen, as they unpacked them, carelessly scattered on the ground the straw which had been wrapped about the statues. In the straw were multitudes of little seeds, and the next summer countless flowers from the gardens of Rome were blooming all about the artist's northern home. He had not intended to drop these tiny seeds of loveliness. He was intent only on his great work, thinking only of the magnificent results in marble that he was bringing home which would be admired for ages. But while carrying out his grand purposes, he was also unconsciously scattering about his home other tender and beautiful influences. In like manner, the busiest men intent on the grandest purposes are ever scattering about them countless seeds which will spring up either in tender loveliness to bless their homes or in a harvest of evil to leave blight and sorrow. It may be that in the end the unconscious, unintended influences will far surpass in their permanent results on life and character those for which they planned with such pains and wrought with such glowing hope. Few things are more important in a home than its conversation, and yet there are few things to which less thought is given. The power to communicate good which lies in the tongue is simply incalculable. It can impart knowledge, utter words that will shine like lamps in darkened hearts, speak kindly sentences that will comfort sorrow or cheer despondency, breathe out thoughts that will arouse and quicken heedless souls, 
even whisper the secret of life-giving energy to spirits that are dead. Only a word, but twas spoken in love, with a whispered prayer to the Lord above, and angels in heaven rejoice once more for a newborn soul entered in by the door. The good we could do in our homes with our tongues, if we would use them to the utmost limit of their capacity, is simply impossible to compute. Why should so much power for blessing be wasted? Especially, why should we ever pervert these gifts and use our tongues to do evil, to give pain, to scatter seeds of bitterness? It is a sad thing when a child is born dumb. But it were better far to be dumb and never to have the gift of speech at all than having it to employ it in speaking only sharp, unloving, or angry words. Only a word, but sharp, oh, sharper than a two-edged sword, to pierce and sting and scar the heart whose peace a breath of flame could mar. The home conversation should be loving. Home is the place for warmth and tenderness, yet there is in many families a great dearth of kind words. In some cases, there is no conversation at all worthy of the name. There are no affectionate greetings in the morning or good nights at parting when the day closes. The meals are eaten in silence. There are no fireside chats over the events and incidents of the day. A stranger might mistake the home for a deaf and dumb institution. In other cases, it were better if silence reigned, for only words of miserable strife and shameful quarreling are heard from day to day. Husband and wife, who vowed at the marriage altar to cherish the one, the other, till death, keep up an incessant petty strife of words. Parents who are commanded in the holy word not to provoke their children to anger lest they be discouraged, but to bring them up in the nurture of the Lord, scarcely ever speak gently to them. They seem to imagine that they are not governing their children unless they are perpetually scolding at them. They fly into passions against them at the smallest irritation. They issue their commands to them in words and tones which would better suit a despot of some petty savage tribe than the head of a Christian household. It is not strange that under such nurture, the children, instead of dwelling together in unity with loving speech, should only wrangle and quarrel speaking only bitter words in their intercourse with one another. That there are many homes of just this type, it is idle to deny. That prayer is offered morning and evening in these families only makes the matter worse, as it is mockery for a household to rise from their knees only to begin another day of strife and bitterness. Nothing in the home life needs to be more carefully watched and more diligently cultivated than the conversation. It should be imbued with the spirit of love. No bitter word should ever be spoken. The language of husband and wife in their intercourse together should always be tender. Anger in word or even in tone should never be suffered. Chiding and fault-finding should never be permitted to mar the sacredness of their speech. The warmth and tenderness of their hearts should flow out in every word that they utter to each other. As parents, too, in their intercourse with their children, they should never speak save in words of Christ-like gentleness. It is a fatal mistake to suppose that children's lives can grow up into beauty in an atmosphere of strife. Harsh, angry words 
are to their sensitive souls what frosts are to the flowers. To bring them up in the nurture of the Lord is to bring them up as Christ himself would. And surely that would be with infinite gentleness. The blessed influence of loving speech, day after day and month after month, it is impossible to estimate. It is like the falling of warm spring sunshine and rain on the garden, causing lovely flowers to spring up in every nook and corner and filling all the air with sweet fragrance. Only beauty and gentleness of character can come from such a home. I have known a word more gentle than the breath of summer air. In a listening heart it nestled and it lived forever there. Not the beating of its prison stopped it ever night or day. Only with the heart's last throbbing could it fade away. But home conversation needs more than love to give its full influence. It ought to be enriched by thought. The Savior's warning against idle words should be remembered. Every wise-hearted parent will seek to train his household to converse on subjects that will yield instruction or tend toward refinement. The table affords an excellent opportunity for this kind of education. Three times each day the family gathers there. It is a place for cheerfulness. Simply on hygienic grounds, meals should not be eaten in silence. Bright, cheerful conversation is an excellent source and a prime aid to digestion. If it prolongs the meal and thus appears to take too much time out of the busy day, it will add to the years in the end by increased healthfulness and lengthened life. In any case, however, something is due to refinement, and still more is due to the culture of one's home life. The table should be made the center of the social life of the household. There, all should appear at their best. Gloom should be banished. The conversation should be bright and sparkling. It should consist of something besides dull and threadbare commonplaces. The weather is a worn-out topic. The idle gossip of the street is scarcely a worthy theme for such hallowed moments. The conversation of the table should be of a kind to interest all the members of the family. Hence, it should vary to suit the age and intelligence of those who form the circle. The events and occurrences of each day may with profit be spoken of and discussed. And now that the daily newspaper contains so full and faithful a summary of the world's doings and happenings, this is easy. Each one may mention the event which has specially impressed him in reading. Bits of humor should always be welcome, and all wearisome recital and dull, uninteresting discussion should be avoided. Table talk may be enriched, and at the same time, the intelligence of all the members of a family may be advanced. By bringing out at least one new fact at each meal, to be added to the common fund of knowledge. Suppose there are two or three children at the table ranging in their ages from five to twelve. Let the father or the mother have some particular subject to introduce during the meal which will be both interesting and profitable to the younger members of the family. It may be some historical incident or some scientific fact or the life of some distinguished man. The subject should not be above the capacity of the younger people for whose especial benefit it is introduced. Nor should the conversation be overladen by attempting too much at one time. One single fact, clearly presented and firmly impressed, is better than whole chapters of information poured out in a confused jargon on minds that cannot remember any part of it. 
A little thought will show the rich outcome of a system like this if faithfully followed through a series of years. But if one fact is presented at every meal, there will be a thousand things taught to the children in a year. If the subjects are wisely chosen, the fund of knowledge communicated in this way will be of no inconsiderable value. A whole system of education lies in this suggestion, for besides the communication of important knowledge, the habit of mental activity is stimulated. Interest is awakened in lines of study and research, which afterward may be followed out, tastes are improved, whilst the whole effect upon the family life is elevating and refining. It may be objected that such a system of table talk could not be conducted without much thought and preparation on the part of the parents. But if the habit once were formed and the plan properly introduced, it would be found comparatively easy for parents of ordinary intelligence to maintain it. Books are now prepared in great numbers, giving important facts in small compass. Then there are encyclopedias and dictionaries of various kinds. The newspapers contain every week paragraphs and articles of great value in such a course. A wise use of scissors and paste will keep scrapbooks well filled with materials which can readily be made available. It will be necessary to think and plan for such a system, to choose the topics in advance, and to become familiar with the facts. This work might be shared by both parents, and thus be easy for both. That it will cost time and thought and labor ought not to be an objection. For is it not worth almost any cost to secure the benefits and advantages which would result from such a system of home instruction? These are hints only of the almost infinite possibilities of good which lie in the home conversation. That so little is realized in most cases where so much is possible is one of the saddest things about our current life. It may be that these suggestions, though crude, may stimulate in some families at least an earnest search after something better than they have yet found in their desultory and aimless conversational habits. Surely, There should be no home in which amid all the light talk that flies from busy tongues time is not found every day to say at least one word that shall be instructive, suggestive, elevating, or in some way helpful. The home evenings present another field rich with possibilities of lasting influence and holy impression. It is one of the misfortunes of our times that the home is being so robbed of its evenings by business by pleasure, and by society. Some men never spend an evening at home in all the year. Some women do little better. Is it any wonder that in such cases, heaven's benediction does not seem to fall upon the household? The days are so full of occupation for most of us, from early morning till nightfall, that whatever real home life we make, we must make in the evenings. To the evening, and especially the winter's evening, belong mainly the influences of domestic life. Its few short hours are all the uninterrupted time we have at our disposal to know our own or to be known of them. The impression that home leaves upon the child comes largely from its evenings. The visions which memory delights in conjuring up are the old scenes about the evening fire or the evening lamp. When we think of the importance of evenings at home, it certainly seems worthwhile to plan to save as many as possible of them from outside demands for the sacred work within. 
it were better that we should neglect some social attraction or miss some political meeting or be absent from some lodge or society than that we should neglect the culture of our own homes and let our children slip away from us forever. To allow a boy to spend his evenings on the streets is almost inevitably to indenture him to a life of sin, ending in ruin. The school of the street trains him with amazing rapidity for all manner of crimes. The father who permits his son to go out nightly from the home door amid these unholy influences must not be surprised to learn in a very little time that his boy has learned to smoke, to swear, to drink, to gamble, and that his soul has already been debauched. But how can we keep our boys off the streets at nights? Can we do it if we ourselves hasten away from home every evening as soon as we snatch a hurried supper? If parents would save their boys, they must make home life for the evenings so pleasant, so attractive, so charming, that they will not want to leave it for any coarse or glaring fascinations outside. How can this be done? It can be done if the parents set themselves to do it. There may be a season of romping if the children are young, a children's hour devoted to such play as they will enjoy. There may be pleasant games to pass away a portion of the evening. There may be the reading aloud of some racy and interesting book by one member of the family while the others carry on the light forms of work which occupy their hands and eyes, but leave their ears open to hear. There may be music for a time and bright, cheerful conversation, closing with a prayer and a good night. No instruction is needed to teach any intelligent parent how to give to the evenings at home a charm which shall make their influence all potent. It is necessary only that parents shall set about doing that which their own hearts tell them so plainly ought to be done. Of course, it will take time. Something must be left out of life if this is to be done. But is there anything else in all the round of life's calls, and even its seeming duties, that might not well be left out for the sake of anchoring our children to their homes? Is there anything else that it would be so fatal and terrible to leave out as to leave our children out to perish in the ruin of the streets while we are at lodges and operas and parties, or even at church meetings? In considering the influences of the home life that leave deep and permanent impressions on character, thought must be given to the books and papers that are read. The invention of the art of printing marked a new era in the world's history. On the printed pages that fly everywhere like the leaves of autumn, drifting to our doors and swept into our innermost chambers, are born to us the golden thoughts of the best and wisest men and women of all ages. The blessings that the printing press scatters are infinite and rich beyond all estimate. But the same types that today give us pure and holy thoughts, words of truth and of life, tomorrow give us veiled suggestions of evil, words of honeyed sweetness but in which deadly poison is concealed. It is related that one of the soldiers of Cyrus found a casket which was reported to be full of valuable treasures. It was opened and out of it came a poisonous atmosphere which caused a terrible plague in the army. Many a book that is bound in bright colors has stored within those covers the most deadly moral influences. To open it in a pure home among young and tender lives is to let loose evils that never can be gathered back and locked up again. 
The printing press puts into the hands of parents a means of good which they may use to the greatest advantage in the culture of their home life and in the shaping of the lives of their household. But they must keep a most diligent watch over the pages that they introduce. They should know the character of every book and paper that comes within their doors and should resolutely exclude everything that would defile. Then, while they exclude everything whose influence would be for evil, if they are wise, they will bring into their home as much as possible of pure, elevating, and refining literature. Every beautiful thought that enters a child's mind adds to the strength and loveliness of the character in the afterdays. The educating influence of the best books and papers is incalculable, and no parent can afford to lose it in the training of his family. Something should be said about home pleasures and amusements. It is a great misfortune if parents suffer themselves to lose the youthful spring and elasticity out of their lives and to grow away from the spirit of childhood. They should never become old in heart. It was Swedenborg who wrote of heaven that there the oldest angels are the youngest. There is something very striking in that thought. In that blessed home, the members of the family grow always toward youth. Instead of acquiring the marks of age, of care, of exhaustion, they become every day fresher, fairer, fuller of the exuberance of life. It ought to be so in every true earthly home. We cannot stop the years from rolling on, nor can we keep back the gray hairs and the wrinkles and the lines of weariness. These bodies will grow old in spite of us. But there is no reason why our spirits should not be always young. We ought to keep a child's heart beating in our breast until God calls us up higher. We ought to grow always toward youth. The oldest people in the home ought to be the youngest. If we do grow old, it will be bad for our households. There are some homes where the children can scarcely smile without being frowned upon. They are expected to be as grave as if they were fifty and carrying all the burdens of the world upon their shoulders. All the joyousness of their nature is repressed. They are taught to be prim and stiff in their manners. They are continually impressed with the thought that it is a sinful waste of time to play and that it is displeasing to God to have fun and frolic. Someone says, A great many homes are like the frame of a harp that stands without strings. In form and outline, they suggest music, but no melody rises from the empty spaces. And thus, it happens that home is unattractive, dreary, and dull. There are homes which this picture describes, but they are not the homes that are most like heaven, nor the homes out of which come the truest and noblest lives. God wants us to fill our homes with happiness. He made childhood joyous, full of life bubbling over with laughter, playful, bright, and sunny. It is a crime to repress the mirth and the gladness and to try to make children grave and stately. Life's burdens will come soon enough to lie upon their shoulders. Life will soon enough bring care and anxiety and hardship and a weight of responsibility. We should let them be young and free from care just as long as possible. We should put into their childhood days just as much sunshine and gladness, just as much cheerful pleasure as possible. Besides, the way also to make them strong and noble in character when they grow up to manhood and womanhood is to make their childhood and youth bright and happy. 
If you want to produce a vigorous, healthy plant, you will not bring it up in a dark room. You will give it all the sunshine it will take. Human lives will never grow into their best in gloom. Pour the sunshine about them in youth. Let them be happy. Encourage all innocent joy. Provide pleasant games for them. Romp and play with them. Be a child again among them. Then God's blessing will come upon your home, and your child will grow up sunny-hearted, gentle, affectionate, joyous themselves, and joy-bearers to the world. When McMahon returned victorious from the Battle of Magenta, all Paris came out to welcome him. Many were the honors heaped upon the brave bronzed soldier. As he was passing in triumph through the streets and boulevards, a little child ran out toward him with a bunch of flowers in her hand. He stooped down and lifted her up before him, and she stood there, her arms twining about his neck as he rode on. This simple exhibition of gentleness toward a little child pleased the people more and seemed a more beautiful act in their eyes for the moment than all the memory of his heroic deeds on the battlefield. Men are greatest and best not when they are wrestling with the world, not when they are putting forth the startling qualities of power, not when they are playing the hero in great contests, but when they are exhibiting most of the spirit of a little child. No parent, therefore, should ever be ashamed to romp and play with his children. Perhaps he is nearer to God then, than when doing what he deems his grandest work in the world. Perhaps the angels applaud more then than when he is performing deeds that bring him praise or fame. And it is better to have fame among the angels than in a dozen worlds. The young must have amusements. The only question is, what shall be the character of the amusements? Shall they be pure, healthful, refining, elevating? Or shall they be degrading in their influence? The parents must answer these questions, and the best way to answer them is to provide in their own home such amusements as they deem proper. If the home is dull and cheerless, it must not be considered an indication of extraordinary depravity that the children and young people seek pleasure elsewhere. It is as natural as that bees hived in a stubble field should want to fly over the fence to gather honey from the clover field adjoining. If there is clover at home, they will not care to fly abroad. Wise parents will provide amusements for their children, and they will provide them at home and thus counteract the solicitations of worldly pleasure outside. There is a great variety of suitable home amusements. One is music. Music is not a mere amusement only, but one that combines rich instruction and lasting influence for good with the purest enjoyment. It is scarcely possible to conceive of any pleasure that surpasses an evening of song in the parlor when the whole family unite in it, perhaps with other friends, one at the piano or organ and the others grouped about, male and female voices blending, now in the pleasant ballad or glee, now in the sacred anthem or hymn. The songs of childhood sung thus into the heart are never forgotten. Their memories live under all the accumulations of busy years, like the sweet flowers that bloom all the winter beneath the heavy snowdrifts. They are remembered in old age when nearly all else is forgotten, and oft-times singing them themselves over again in the heart with voice sweet as an angel's when no other music has power to charm. They neglect one of the richest sources of pleasure and blessing who do not cultivate singing in their homes. Then there are many games which bring great enjoyment. 
Chess is delightful to those who have patience and skill to master it, but it requires close thought. There is much enjoyment in the old-fashioned game of checkers. There are many games with various kinds of historical cards and cards of authors or of birds and animals, which combine exciting pleasure with some instruction. There is scarcely any limit to the number of innocent games from which to make selection for evening amusements. Charades furnish genuine enjoyment. Reading clubs may be so conducted as to yield both pleasure and instruction. It needs only a heart in full sympathy with youthful feelings, a little skill in arranging and preparing these pleasures, a small expense in furnishing the simple games and other requisites, and interest enough in the matter to devote a little time and pains to it. There is no parent of ordinary intelligence who may not make his home life so bright and sunny that no one will ever care to go outside to seek amusement amid the senseless frivolities or the debasing pleasures that the world offers. Homes that are made thus in all these ways, so bright and happy, acquire a resistless power over those who live within their doors, which will hold them under its subtle influence wherever they go in all their after years. There is one experience that comes sooner or later in the life of every home, the experience of sorrow. There may be years of unbroken gladness, but in the end grief is sure to come. The stream that has flowed so long with merry ripple through the green fields and amid the flowers in the bright sunshine sweeps into the deep shadows, plunges into the dark sunless gorge, or is hurled over the waterfall. We press our children to our bosom today and love builds up a thousand brilliant hopes for them in our hearts. Then tomorrow death comes and they lie silent and still amid the flowers. Or... We watch over them and see them grow up into nobleness and beauty, when just as our dreams and hopes seem about to be realized, the fatal touch is upon them and they are taken away. There is no need to describe this experience. Memory needs no reminder in such cases. The most helpful thing that can be done in these pages is to point out a few of the comforts which should come to every Christian home in such hours. There is great comfort in the thought that what has befallen us is God's will. Long ago, this was the rock on which a godly man leaned when death had come suddenly and taken all. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. When we know that God is truly our Father and that His love is eternal and unchangeable, this confidence should give us great peace even in the sorest bereavement. In the Pitti Palace at Florence, there are two pictures which hang side by side. One represents a stormy sea with its wild waves and black clouds and fierce lightning flashes across the sky. In the waters, a human face is seen, wearing an expression of the utmost agony and despair. The second picture also represents a sea tossed by as fierce a storm with as dark clouds, but out of the mist of the waves, a rock rises, against which the waters dash in vain. In a cleft of the rock are some tufts of grass and green herbage, with sweet flowers, and amid those a dove is seen sitting on her nest, quiet and undisturbed by the wild fury of the storm or the mad dashing of the waves about her. The first picture fitly represents the sorrow of the world, where all is helpless despair and the other the sorrow of the Christian, 
where amid trial just as terrible, he is in perfect peace, because he is hidden in the cleft of the rock of ages and nestles securely in the bosom of God's unchanging love. Another of the great comforts when a little child is taken away is the truth of the immortal life. In the autumn days, the birds leave our chill northern clime and we hear their songs no more, but the birds are not dead. In the warmer clime of the far south, they live, and amid flowers and fragrant foliage and luscious fruits, they continue to sing as joyously as they sang with us in the happiest summer day. So our children leave us and we miss their sweet faces and prattling voices, but they have only gone to the summer land of heaven. There, in the midst of the glory of the Lord, they dwell, shedding their tender grace on other hearts. We all believe this, but most of us believe it in such a way as to get but little comfort from it. The bringing into our hearts of the truth of immortality would take away all bitterness from our sorrow when our little ones leave us. In that great cloister's stillness and seclusion by guardian angels led, safe from temptation, safe from sin's pollution, she lives whom we call dead. Day after day, we think what she is doing in those bright realms of air. Year after year, her tender steps pursuing, behold her grown more fair. One of the chief elements of the sorrow when children or young persons die is the sore disappointment. Careers of great usefulness have been marked out for them, and without even entering upon them, they are gone. They seem to have lived in vain, to have died without accomplishing any work in this world. So it appears until we think more deeply of it. And then we see that they have not been in this world in vain, though their stay was so brief. They have not done what we had planned for them to do, but they have accomplished the part in God's great plan which He had marked out for them. Here is a little babe. It lies now in the coffin with a face beautiful as an angel's smile. It lived but a few days or a few months. It merely opened its eyes upon the earth and then, as if too pure for this world of sin, closed them again and went back to God. Did you say that it lived in vain, that it performed no work? Do you know how many blessings it brought down from heaven to that home when it came like a messenger from the fragrant garden of God, shook its robes, and then fled away again? It only crept into the mother's bosom for a brief season and was gone. But ever afterward, her heart will be warmer, her life richer and deeper, and her spirit gentler and sweeter. No one can tell what holy work a babe performs that stays only an hour in this world. It does not live in vain. It leaves touches of beauty on other souls which shall never fade out. It may accomplish more in that one short hour, leave greater blessings behind than do others who live long, full years. It may change the eternal destiny of one or more souls. Many a child dying leads an unsaved parent to the sacred feet of Christ. Certain it is that no true parent is ever just the same in character after clasping his own child in his arms. To have felt the warmth and thrill of a new love even for a few moments, though the object loved be withdrawn, leaves a permanent result in the life. 
or perhaps a child lives to be 10 or 12 years old. She is the light and joy of the home. Great promises begin to bud and blossom out in her life. Then she dies. As the parent bends over her and kisses her pale, cold lips, they mourn over the crushed hopes that lie there, like buds opening only to be killed by the frost. In imagination, they have seen her standing forth in all the splendor of queenly womanhood, crowned with honor, beauty, and love. But she has died without realizing these hopes. She has fallen just on the threshold of life. Yet who will say that she did no work in those brief, bright years? She has been a blessing in her home all the time, drawing out the love of tender hearts, scattering influences of joy and purity. Now she is gone, but the work she has done in the home hearts and lives remains and never can be taken away. God takes away your children, and in faith you surrender them to Him to see them no more in this world. But you cannot give back all that they have brought to you. In your heart new springs of love were opened by their coming, and you cannot give these back. Death cannot take out of your life the new experiences which you had in pressing them to your heart or in loving and caring for them through the sunny years. You are better, stronger, richer in your nature, more a man or a woman, because you have held in your arms and have nurtured your own child. These new outreachings of your life never can be taken from you. Like new branches of a tree, they will remain ever after part of yourself. Though the loved ones are removed, the results of their coming to you and staying with you, the influences, the impressions made, the qualities, the new growths in your life will never depart. They are your permanent possessions forever. Tennyson puts this truth in happy phrase. God gives us love, something to love. He lends us. But when love is grown to ripeness, that on which it throve falls off and love is left alone. Thus, while the influences of a child's life remain, its death also brings new blessings to the home. It softens all hearts. Rudeness grows gentle under the influence of sorrow. It brings the parents closer together. Many an incipient estrangement is healed at the coffin of a dead child. It is like a new marriage. I thought our love at full, but I did err. Joy's wreath drooped o'er mine eyes. I could not see that sorrow in our world must be love's deepest spokesman and interpreter. I felt instantly deep in my soul another bond to thee, thrill with that life we saw depart from her. O mother of our angel child, twice dear, death knits as well as parts, and still, I wis, her tender radiance shall enfold us here even as the light, borne up by inward bliss, threads the void glooms of space without a fear, to print on farthest stars her pitying kiss. James Russell Lowell There come to many homes other sorrows besides the sorrows of bereavement. There are griefs sorer than those caused by death. There are sorrows over the living who are in peril or who are wandering away, sometimes over those who have fallen. There are wives weeping in secret over trials of which they can speak to none but God. 
There are parents with sadder disappointments than if they stood by the coffins of their early dead. Sin and shame cause bitterer tears than death. There are homes from which the shadow never lifts, out of which the brightness seems forever to have gone. There are home hearts from which the music has fled, and which are like harps with their strings all broken. Yet even for those there is comfort if they are resting in God's bosom. The divine love can bring blessing out of every possible trial. No life that clings by faith to Christ can be destroyed. In a lovely Swiss valley, there is a cascade which is caught by the swift winds as it pours over the edge of the rock, and scattered so that the falling stream is lost for the time, and only a wreath of whirling spray is seen in the air. But farther down the valley, the stream gathers itself back again and pours along in full current and quiet peace, as if it had never been so rudely smitten by the wind. Even the blast that scatters it for the time and seems to destroy it altogether really makes it all the lovelier as it whirls its crystal drops into the air. At no other point in all its course is the stallback so beautiful. There are Christian lives that seem to be utterly destroyed by trial, but beyond the sorrow, they move on again in calmer, fuller strength, not destroyed, not a particle of their real life wasted. And in the trial itself, through the grace of Christ, their character shines out in richer luster and rarer splendor than ever in the days when their hearts were fullest of joy and gladness. The night is mother of the day, the winter of the spring, and ever upon old decay the greenest mosses cling. Behind the cloud the starlight lurks, through showers the sunbeams fall. For God, who loveth all his works, hath left his hope with all. So the life of the true home flows on, sometimes in the bright sunshine, sometimes in the deep shadow. Yet whether in sunshine or in shadow, it brings blessing. It shelters us in the day of storm. Its friendships remain true and loyal when adversity falls and other friendships are broken. It lays holy hands of benediction upon our heads as we go out to meet life's struggles and duties. Its sacred influences keep us from many a sin. Its memories are our richest inheritance. Its inspirations are the secret strength of our lives in days of toil and care. Then it teaches us to look toward heaven as the great home in which all our heart's hopes and dreams shall be realized, and where the broken ties of earth shall be reunited. Thank you so much for listening today, or over the last several days, however long it took, I hope that you have been inspired and encouraged to help your children cultivate deep love, friendship, and affection for one another. And if you are estranged from your own siblings, I pray that Miller's words have sparked in you a desire and a motivation to seek reconciliation. I also pray that if you are in a season of grief or sorrow in your home life, you will look to the Lord to lead you through this difficult time. He is so faithful, and He understands your pain as no one else can. No matter how bleak things look, you can trust Him to lead you and your family over the terrifying precipice or through the darkest valley. 
He will help your home life to flow on in hope toward heaven, our great home, in which, as Miller says, all our hearts, hopes, and dreams shall be realized and where the broken ties of earth shall be reunited. Keep cultivating those seeds of loveliness, homemaker. Eventually, they will blossom. That's all for this episode. I will meet you back here next Wednesday for our final two chapters of J.R. Miller's Homemaking. Until then, keep practicing your art of making a home.